Amen. Well, we're in the book of Exodus. We're starting, um, this is our second week in a series entitled Becoming His, Becoming the People that God intends and desires for us to be. The same way that he set apart a people for himself in Moses' day, he brought out the people of Israel and made them his, created a community that was designed to worship him and designed to point others to him. He's done the same for us today. In the New Testament, we refer to that as the church. You're a part of that if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you've decided to follow Jesus, you are the community of God. And God wants us to be the community that he's called us to be. And many times we struggle with that, do we not? We're going to look at some of the struggles in Moses' day. They struggled with becoming the community that God called them to be. And we have some of the same struggles. That's why it's valuable to look at some of the stories in the Old Testament and see things and begin to understand things and apply things into our reality today. God taught them lessons then, and he wants to teach us lessons today. Our, our pas- passage that we've kind of based this, this uh, series on is <clears throat> found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. It's a beautiful picture, right? We weren't a people. We weren't um, together. We were all different. We all came from different backgrounds. We all have different heritages. But God brought us together as one people in Christ. Today, we're going to look at our second chapter of Exodus. Last week, it was suffering and slavery. How did we get here? How did we get here? And we saw that they had gotten there because there were some things that were forgotten, some things that were forsaken. And they ended up suffering in slavery, and now they find themselves crying out to God for deliverance. Today, suffering in slavery, and a deliverer is born. That's our our message this morning, a deliverer is born. Now, I brought my little awesome pointer thing. Hopefully I still have it. Yes, I still have it. And I want to um, show you a few pictures here. Um, so this is something that artists call double images or double pictures. Now raise your hand if you have seen this before. All right, put your hands down. Okay, you're cheating. If you've never seen this, this is a very, one of the most famous double picture images. And raise your hand if you see the picture and it's a young lady kind of looking off into the distance. Okay, raise your hand if you see an old lady. Okay, how many see both? You see both? All right, let me point this out for you. Let me see if I got my pointer working here. Um, where is my little laser pointer thing? Uh, right here. Is that working? Uh, it's not working, is it? It's just tiny? I can't see it. All right, point. So here's the face of the young lady right here. She's looking that way. And then you can see a mouth and an eye of an older woman. How many see that now? You guys see it? It's kind of interesting how one artist can paint one image, but it can actually portray two different realities or two different meanings. Let's go to the next one. 
All right. How many see a duck? How many see a rabbit? All right. So the duck has the beak, you know, going out here. And there's the eye of the duck, right? But this also could be the ears, and there's an eye, and here's kind of the nose and mouth of the rabbit looking that direction. You guys see that now? All right, okay. You guys are getting good at this. Let's try this third one. All right. How many see the picture of a couple enjoying a nice view of the landscape that's around them? How many see a baby child? You guys can see the baby child? All right, here, here's the eye of the baby child. Here's the nose and mouth. And he's laying on his back like he's in a bathtub or something. You guys see that now? All right. So why do I take the time to show you that? And why does my laser pointer not work? The reason I wanted to show you that is because we have an amazing God who's the ultimate artist, the ultimate author of Scripture. And although we're going to be looking at the story and the life of Moses today from Exodus chapter 2, when we look a little closer, we're going to see other images start to surface from the pages of Scripture, pictures that are beautiful and that are redemptive that apply to us today. Who's excited for this morning? Anybody? Let's dig in. Let's dig in and see what God has to share with us this morning. Exodus chapter 2. When you're there, say, I'm there. All right, good. If you're not there, there should be something on the screen behind me. That's the way to cheat and follow along. All right. Exodus chapter 2. Now, a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The names of Moses' parents were not given right here in the text, but later on in the story we get their names. The name of Moses' dad was a man named Amram. It's kind of an interesting name. Any, anybody expecting or know somebody that's expecting? Tell them, hey, Amram has a son, right? Just call him Ram for short. Um, and his mother was known as Jochebed. Jochebed. It actually was Amram's aunt. It's kind of weird, huh? Amran married his aunt, and the two of them were the Levite parents that we are reading about here in Exodus chapter 2. We also know that they already had two children, at least two children, but two are named for us. One is Miriam, seems to be the oldest daughter that was born to these two Levite parents, and an older brother, Aaron, who is about three years older than Moses, whom we're about to read, that is born in this situation. Now, because they had older um, siblings, uh, Moses had older siblings, it's likely that, do you remember last week we saw that the Pharaoh issued a decree that all the Hebrew boys should be thrown into the Nile? They should be disposed of and killed? It's likely that Aaron, his older brother, three years older than him, was born before that decree. And now we have a Levite family who, again, finds themselves pregnant and delivering a son. Verse 2, the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son when she saw that he was beautiful. That word beautiful literally means healthy, literally means he's perfect, 
right? How, how many parents here, when, you were, when your child was born, you look at them and they're like, that's like perfect. I never forget my oldest, Micah. He came out and he just sat there and he had his eyes wide open and he was looking around. He didn't even cry. And I was like, he's perfect. He's amazing, right? And I remember that moment. I think all of us parents do that, right? And then somebody else visits our child and goes, oh, they got issues, but if they think they're beautiful, right? We all see it through our lens. But the, she became pregnant, gave birth to a son, and she saw that he was beautiful. She hid him for three months. You remember the midwives? They weren't going to follow the instructions of the Pharaoh. They were like, we ain't going to obey you. We have a fear of God. And so he decrees that any of the Egyptians that see Hebrew sons that are born to make sure you have a duty to the Egyptian, you know, uh, oversight of Egypt, as a citizen of Egypt, you must dispose of them by throwing them in the Nile River or just leaving them out for them to suffer and die. Acts chapter 7, we're going we're gonna to go back and refer to Acts chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 11, a few other passages that, that look back in time, back to this story. But they were written in the New Testament times, after Jesus had come. And this particular passage is recorded as a man named Stephen, one of the early disciples of Jesus, is giving his testimony and sharing a testimony of faith with those of his Jewish brothers and sisters that were there listening as they picked up stones to, to martyr him. They literally put this guy to death. This was his final words, his final speech, if you will, recounting the story of God and how he had worked throughout their history to bring about Jesus, the one whom Stephen had placed his faith and trust, and he was trying to convince his brothers to do the same. He writes these words, Acts chapter 7, verse 20. At this time, Moses was born. He had already talked about things that happened before Moses. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, how God had called those forefathers. He had set them apart. He had given them a promise. And now he says, at this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. It's kind of another interesting angle on that, on that thing we just read about in Exodus, where, where Moses' mom looks at him and goes, he's perfect. He's beautiful. This is Stephen saying, that's what God's perspective was. God's perspective was, this is my chosen vessel to work my redemptive plan through. This is a beautiful child set apart for God's work. He was cared for in his father's home three months, Stephen continues. Verse 3 of Exodus chapter 2, But when she could no longer hide him, remember, if he became visible, he was subject to death. He was subject to any Egyptian that saw that being able to grab that child and drown that child. And that was legal. Not only was that legal, but that was expected and required of an Egyptian citizen in that time. So she couldn't hide him any longer. Probably he got noisier. He maybe began to crawl. It's harder to hide a child once they become mobile. Any parents try and keep up with the mobile kids? Once they start crawling and walking, you, some parents put them on a leash. That's weird to me, but the, I've seen it. All right? But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. What's that all about? It's just creating it to be waterproof. She has a goal in mind 
that she feels determined to place this basket with him inside in, into a body of water called the Nile River. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Now, I think this was intentionally done. I think she understood that there might be someone who may have some level of compassion on a child who regularly came down from the palace to bathe in that water. And so this child was placed there as an opportunity to see what God might do, to see what might happen. And there was, that's an element of faith, is it not, by a parent? But realizing, like, I can't just keep this secret anymore. I have to trust this to God. But there was a sense of intentionality. I'm not just going to set him down the river to start floating away. I'm going to put him right by the bank so that he can be heard or, or seen by someone who might take notice. And I trust God with his life. Then his sister stood at a distance. His sister Miriam, we find out later in Scripture, that was her name, probably a teenager at this time, was given the responsibility by her mother, you stand by. Don't be seen, but just kind of, you know, hide in the bushes and, and just keep eye on him. Find out what God does. She stood at a distance in order to see what might happen to him. Verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. Seeing the basket among the reeds, she sent her slave girl to get it. When she opened it, she saw the child, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him, literally had compassion upon him. Her heart opened to this baby and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. She knows, she identified who and what this this child was. She also knew, being the daughter of the Pharaoh, that this child was under a death sentence. This child was a condemned child. And yet God moved and stirred in this woman's heart to disagree with her own father's command. To disregard that and instead regard what was in her heart. To act out of what was in her heart and in compassion towards this child. Verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a woman from the Hebrews to nurse the boy for you? This is when Miriam pops out of the bushes. Kind of interesting. You can imagine, probably they thought, oh, it's just some, some uh, Hebrew girl that just happened to be walking by. But no, this was a plant. She was there watching out for this child. And the moment where this child was discovered, to leave no room for like, well, maybe it's just too overwhelming to deal with this kid. Let's just dump it in the river. Here comes Miriam, and she pops out and gives the Pharaoh's daughter an opportunity to find a way to care for this child, to act upon the compassion that God had already stirred in her heart. Should I go and call a woman from the Hebrews? Now, of course, Miriam knows a woman, does she not? She knows a woman. She knows her mom, Jochebed, is, is the perfect woman to nurse the boy for you. And what does Pharaoh's daughter say? Verse 8, go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, this is beautiful, take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. 
So not only does the mom receive her son back to nurse him all the way to an age where eventually he would be weaned and be on his own, but she gets compensated or paid by the Egyptians who say this son deserves death to care for his life. Does God turn things around? We sing songs like, turn it around, God. Turn this situation around in my life. God turns situations around. He's the same God that we sung about this morning that was there then, and he can turn around situations in our lives today. Do we have faith? Do we trust him? Verse 9, then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me. I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. And when the child grew older, verse 10, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. We don't know how old he was, but likely probably six, seven, school age, right? A lot of times they would nurse children all the way up until about five years old back then. They would nurse children until they were old enough to sort of completely be on their own and be independent. Um, We even see that back when uh, Hannah had a son named Samuel, and Hannah had dedicated Samuel to the Lord. And so when the child grew old enough, probably, like I said, school age, six, six, seven years old, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And that must have been a tough, you know, goodbye for mom. Because she could have easily said, well, shoot, I'm just going to keep hiding this kid and you know, but no, she honored this promise and this agreement. She was thankful to God for giving her extra time with her son. And now, once again, she was tr- entrusting her son back over to God. And Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Whose son did, did, did he become? He became Pharaoh's daughter's son. What does that mean? Now he's part of the royal family. Now he is Egyptian royalty. He's been adopted into the royal family. And from that royal family, he was given a name. Do you realize that Moses is not a Hebrew name? Moses was not named so by his own mom or by his parents. Moses was a name given to him by the Egyptian pharaoh's own daughter. And yet we know and we call him that to this day. An Egyptian name, Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. What does Moses mean in Egyptian? It means drawn from the water, drawn from the water. And that's how he became known. He became known as that kid, that Hebrew child that was drawn out of the water, rescued from death supernaturally. He was rescued from death. He was under a death sentence at his birth, and yet he was set apart, and he was rescued from that death. And not only that he was rescued from death, but no, he was adopted into a royal family and now had all the privileges and all the benefits of being royalty in the most powerful land on earth. Do you remember when I talked about at the beginning of this message that we see other pictures when we look at Scripture? This is the first picture that we should be able to see, and that's this. Moses is a picture of our own salvation. Moses is a picture of our own salvation. He was born with a death sentence, yet he was compassionately rescued from condemnation and adopted into the royal family. Is that not you and I 
our story in Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. But God did not just leave us that way along the Nile River destined to just drown and die. No, he looked at us and our plight with compassion. And he didn't just look at it, he took action. And he said, I love that child. I love that child. And I want to care for that child. I want to nurture that child. I want to rescue that child from certain death and condemnation. And I want to bring that child into my family. That's what happened in the story of Moses. He got to enjoy all the riches of the land of Egypt as one of the royal family. Do you realize that the Bible says that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ? That if we're adopted into Christ's family, we get to enjoy all the benefits and all the, the glory of heaven and all the things that are Christ's because of what he did on that cross. We are his brother and sister. We are adopted into the family of God and enjoy the privilege of royalty. Is that not a beautiful picture? Why does God write the story of Moses? Well, sure, it's to tell us some history. Sure, it's to show us how slowly God was working in the earth to bring about his Messiah and his redemptive plan. But he also tells us these stories so that we might get a glimpse of spiritual realities that apply in our own lives. And that's one of them. Moses is a picture of our own salvation. Look at Acts chapter 7 again, Stephen talking, verse 21. And when he was left outside, when Moses was left outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. Verse 22, so Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptian, uh, Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and his actions. Moses went from a kid that was going to be destined to live in slavery to a kid who was raised in all the wisdom and power of the most powerful land at that time, Egypt. There was another son born eventually that would be full of grace and truth. Do you remember that? That would, be, that would grow in favor with God and man. Do you remember reading about that? Let's keep going. Verse 11. Back to Exodus chapter 2. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. By this point, Pharaoh's edict to kill all the firstborn males. It's in full effect. But it's, not, it's, it's only working a little bit because the midwives are, are trying to you know, sabotage that. Even his own daughter is sabotaging the effort. Right? So he has these Israelites under enormous pressure as slaves. He's building ginormous cities and monuments to himself. Go visit Egypt. You'll probably see some that were built on the backs of Hebrew slaves. And he observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Literally, the word there is striking. It, it, Striking blows so forceful that this word can actually, many times it's used in the Old Testament to describe striking a blow to death. It's the word that's used of Cain to his brother Abel. 
Cain struck a blow so severe that it killed his brother Abel. Well, in this case, we're not sure that this, the blow resulted in death, but it was leading towards that. That's how severe this beating was that Moses was observing. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. There was an awareness. There was a conscious part of Moses that knew who he was. Knew where he had come from. He had spent, like I said, the first five or six years of his life growing up with who? His own mother, his own family. It was only when he was a little bit older that he was adopted into the courts of Pharaoh. And he was raised as the Pharaoh's daughter's son. Raised as the grandson to the Pharaoh. But there was still a part of Moses that knew, I'm not really Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew. And so he goes out and, and he sees the, the treatment of his own people under the Egyptian taskmasters. And what does Moses do? He looks all around and he sees no one. And so he decides to struck. He struck the Egyptian dead. That word struck there is the same word that's used. It's like the principle, I know the law had not come yet, but Moses eventually receives the law on a mountain and one of, the, one of the things that God says is there should be an eye for an eye. That's what justice should look like. If someone is to poke one, your eye out, you are to poke their eye out. Right? If someone takes your stuff, you are to get their stuff in return. And there's this principle of justice that is eye for an eye. And so Moses observes this striking of his own people, and he goes out and strikes the one who is striking his people. In, in, in one way, Moses is just simply acting out the justice of God. But is this how God wants to have justice take place? Do we take matters into our own hands? If we see an injustice, should we just decide we're going to be the judge, jury, and executioner? No. And, and even in Moses' day, there was a rightful process that Moses should have followed. But he reacts out of his flesh. He reacts and he strikes down the Egyptian dead. And he hid him in the sand. One way we know that Moses knew he wasn't doing the right thing is what he did right after he did it. Did he report it? Did he say, this guy was doing the wrong thing? No, he's looking around making sure there's nobody seeing him. There's sign number one. If you're looking around hoping nobody sees you, you're probably not doing the right thing. And secondly, what he did right after, he tried to hide the body in a shallow grave of sand. Moses had done wrong. He had sinned. Look at verse, uh, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 11 now. Again, a view of a New Testament writer writing back about the story of Moses and giving us, the New Testament reader, a new perspective on what took place. Verse 24, by faith Moses... When he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We now get a glimpse into Moses. He wasn't about just like holding on to, the, to all the power and the, the amazing privilege that he had in Egypt, in the courts of Pharaoh, the grandson of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That wasn't what he held on to, no. 
He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose instead, he chose, he made a conscious choice to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasure of sin. This gives us a glimpse into Moses' heart. This gives us a glimpse into a, a young man who said, I'm not going for the things of this world. I want to be an agent of God and his deliverance. That's what he was all about. For he considered the reproach because of the Messiah. He was looking forward to the promise that he, that he knew about, that he had heard about through his own people, that God would one, say, one day send a deliverer, a Messiah, to rescue his people from their sin. He considered the reproach because of the Messiah. In other words, being identified with people who believed in that to be of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since his attention was on the reward. Moses looked forward to the things that were unseen rather than take advantage of all the pleasure and the, and the privilege and the power that he had on earth. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain. But the moment he was moved to compassion by the sufferings of God's people, he made a choice. He gave up his position his pleasure, his prosperity, and by doing so, he rejected the world's biggest temptations, narcissism, hedonism, and materialism. Moses chose to follow God. Now, did he take the action that God intended him to take? No, he made a huge mistake there. He sinned. He broke one of God's most important laws, thou shalt not murder. And yet he did it out of a heart that was actually in line with God. He did it out of a heart that said, I care about your people and the suffering of your people. So what happens? Verse 13, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, verse 13, why are you attacking your neighbor? What's wrong with you two? Your brothers, your fellow Hebrews, why are you hurting one another? Who made you a leader and judge over us? The man replied. Are you planning to kill me just like you killed the Egyptian? Again, back to Stephen's, Stephen's account of this. We get a little, another glimpse. Acts 7, verse 23. As he was approaching the age of 40, now we know how old Moses was when this all took place. He decided to visit his brothers, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenge the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. Verse 25, we get a glimpse through the Holy Spirit, speaking into Stephen, we get a glimpse of what Moses was thinking. Verse 25, he assumed his brothers would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Moses already had the call of God on his life. I don't know how he understood it, but he understood that he was being prepared by God to deliver his people. He understood that call, and now rather than wait for God's timetable, Moses takes actions on his own terms. And he assumed that his people would just understand, and they would follow his lead as deliverer and savior. The exchange, though, shows why the Israelites were in such desperate need of the savior. Not only did they need to be delivered from Egypt, they needed to be delivered from one another. They were hurting each other. Guess what? That's what happens when you live in a world of violence. 
that violence becomes part of who we are. Do we not live in a world that's messed up and is violent? That violence can get into our own hearts, and we begin to mistreat one another. That's what was happening to Moses' own people. They're beating each other up, and Moses is like, what's wrong with you? But they, they don't respect him. The second way that this story depicts something that's deeper than just the story is this. Moses is a picture of our Savior. Not only is he a picture of our salvation, how we come into a relationship with God through Christ, but he's a picture of Christ himself. Listen to this. He's possessing the privilege and the power of royalty. Sound familiar? Moses, growing up as the Egyptian royalty, he willingly sacrifices his glory to identify himself instead with slaves. He takes up their cause. He becomes, desires to become both a mediator and a savior for his people. Is that not who Jesus Christ is? He left the glory and palace of heaven. He didn't have to. He had every right to be there. And yet he laid down all the glory, the Bible tells us. Philippians chapter 2 says he emptied himself of everything that was glorious in his position in heaven. And what did he do? He took on appearance. He wrapped himself in flesh as one of us, as one of the depraved, as one of the slaves. Why? Because he was taking up our cause. He knew it was necessary to rescue us and to deliver us. He wrapped himself in flesh, and he desires and he strove to become our mediator and our savior. Moses is a picture of Jesus. What are the many ways that he depicts Jesus? Like Moses, Jesus' birth was deemed a threat to the powerful. Do you remember Herod, the king at the time of the Jews? He hears from the wise men that another king of the Jews is being born, and that's a threat. So what does Herod do? He decrees that all the kids who were born in Bethlehem should be what? Put to death. Very similar to the environment in which Moses was born. Like Moses, Jesus' life as an infant was sought to be ended by the king. Like Moses, Jesus' life was supernaturally preserved. Like Moses, Jesus surrendered his glory to be identified with the slaves. And like Moses, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 periods of time in preparation for his ministry of deliverance. Do you remember before Jesus started his ministry, his public ministry? What did he do? He went out into the desert, the Bible says, for 40 days. Before Moses can be the deliverer that God intends him to be, he has to go out into the desert for 40 years. He's being prepared to be who God has made him to be. But unlike Jesus, Moses was just a man. And as a man, he failed. He sinned. Moses' failure was the result of fear and turmoil. Look at verse 14. Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known, because now they're talking about it, right? I don't know if that slave lived that was taking the beating and he went and told all his fellow slaves, this guy killed this Egyptian dude. But now Moses knows he's been outed. And he's afraid because he knows that he did wrong. When Pharaoh heard about this, 
he tried to kill Moses. Moses acted in his own strength, and because of that, the result is fear and turmoil. He's already seemingly failing in his role as a deliverer. Moses is in mortal danger, right? The king is threatening his life, but he has a bigger problem. The Israelites, his own, his own people that he's trying to deliver, they've rejected his leadership. They're like, who made you judge and king? So Moses flees, and he flees out into the, the wilderness. Continue, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Back to Acts chapter 7, continuing Stephen's account of this, verse 29. Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he fathered two sons. After 40 years had passed, that's how we know how long Moses was in the wilderness, was from Stephen's account here. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. Stay tuned, next week Kurt's going to be back, and he's going to be looking at Moses' call from the burning bush. It's a beautiful scene. And I think, I, I've talked to Kurt. His is entitled, You Got Questions? Because Moses has a lot of questions during that scene that we're going to look at next week. Verse 16, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. The founder of the people of Midian was the son of Keturah, which is one of the wives of Abraham. So these people that were living in the wilderness also descended from Abraham. Just a different line, a different wife. They weren't from Sarai or Sarah. They were from Keturah, a wife that Abraham had in his later years. But they knew the God of Abraham, and they worshiped the God of Abraham. And it's interesting that God takes Moses, and he puts him right in their midst leads them right into the wilderness, right to a well where he would be further developed. Verse 16, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. Isn't that beautiful? Moses intervenes into a bunch of bullies. Likely these women would come there all the time and get bullied by these other shepherds. You bunch of women, you can't have any water. Water our animals first, then we might let you have some. And they would just bully these women. But Moses is there and he's trained in the courts of Pharaoh. And he's like, I'll take care of these shepherds. What does he see? He sees another injustice. This time he's learned a little bit, right? He doesn't kill them. He just drives them away. But these young ladies are impressed. When they returned to their father, Ruel, Ruel is the last name of the father, the family unit. He's later revealed as a first name, Jethro. He asked, why have you come back so quickly today? See, he would send his daughters. I don't know why he didn't go with them. Maybe he was kind of old and he couldn't walk too well. We're not sure. But he sends his daughters, and usually they ran into so much trouble that it took them all day to get water. Right? But they're back early today. And maybe the dad just wanted to get rid of them for a day. I don't know. I have daughters. I always want them around. So I'm not guilty of that. Verse 19, they answered, an Egyptian, what do they think of Moses? He looks like and he acts like what? An Egyptian. An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. I love that Moses 
serves others. He's, he's self-sacrificing. And he thinks about being a servant, even in the midst of his own problems. It's the perfect example of Jesus Christ, who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Verse 20, so where is he? The dad asks his daughters. Why, did, why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. What's wrong with you girls? We should show some hospitality. We should show some thankfulness for what he did for you. Why didn't you invite him back to have some dinner? You girls, no wonder you're never going to find a man. Verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man. Obviously, they went and found him again and invited him to dinner, followed their dad's advice. And he gave his daughter Zipporah, probably not that day. I think there was a little time that expired here. He gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And she gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom. For he said, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. The name Gershom literally means living as an alien or living as a foreigner. God uses our wilderness experiences to prepare us for greater things. Quickly, because I'm running out of time. Life experiences lead to life lessons. Do you agree with that? Number one, his living situation taught him to depend on God. Remember, he's in the wilderness. He's having to scrounge for water and, and for, you know, just sustenance every day. He's becoming more and more dependent upon God in his relationship. Did God need to shape Moses to become more dependent on him? Certainly he did. He grew up in the courts of having everything he wanted in Egypt. And God's like, I need you to start depending on me and break that, break that old alliance. Number two, he, he developed a family. His family situation taught him how to love and to care for others through servant leadership. Did he need that to be a deliverer of the people? To lead the Israelites who were tough to love and care for, trust me, right? He needed to develop that in his character. And finally, his work situation, he became a shepherd, just like his father-in-law Jethro was a shepherd. His work situation taught him how to gently guide, nourish, and protect the flock. As we close this morning, I want to I emphasize something. He's not only a picture of our salvation, he's not only a picture of our Savior Jesus, he's a picture of our service. What do I mean? I mean this, everyone matters to God. God so loved the world. God only loved people who were sitting in the pews at cross, crossroads. We don't even have pews, chairs. No, God so loved the world. Everyone matters. God notices the birth and even the conception of every human being, and they all matter in his eyes. They all matter in his heart. He has a special plan in mind for each one of them. He desires that they come to know his love. He wants us set apart for his purposes. Number two, he desires that we get to know his purposes for our life. He provided Jesus so that we might know his love and his purpose. Number three, he prepares us for his call. God is constantly at work in our lives, even when it feels like we're in the desert. Even when it feels like we've failed, God is at work. And he's preparing us for something bigger that we don't even know that's ahead. Moses didn't know about the burning bush at this point. He didn't know about the, the miraculous plagues that God would powerfully work through his life. Moses was in a time of preparation. That's the point. God is always preparing his people for a call. 
to be effective for his purposes. And number four, he invites us into his rescue mission. Listen to that very carefully. God has a rescue mission. That's what he is doing in this world. And he invites you and me to participate in his rescue mission. How do we do that? We don't do that by just coming here and sitting in these chairs. No. We get into our world and we become ambassadors and people who are lights. Amen. Verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out. And their cry for help ascended to God because of the difficult labor. Verse 24, so God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant, his promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw, he looked upon, he opened his eyes to their situation of the Israelites. And he took notice. That that word notice is he took care to say, I'm going to act. I'm going to bring deliverance to my people. Sooner or later, every one of us ends up in a situation where our only option is to cry out to God. To cry out to God. Here at the close of of Exodus 2, Moses steps aside and God takes center stage. That's beautiful, is it not? It's not about us. It's not about Moses. It's about God. It's about his glory. God is ready to deliver his people from their bondage. He is going to act to bring about their salvation. That's who our God is, amen? Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for this beautiful story of Moses, born to be a deliverer, but born to show us more than that. Born to show us that we need deliverance. He's a picture of our own salvation. We are all born under the, the penalty of sin. And it's only because of Jesus that we can have deliverance and salvation through our faith and our trust in his finished work on the cross to pay for our sin. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room that has not made that choice to choose you, Jesus, for deliverance, that they would do that this morning. If anyone is in Christ, the Bible says, they are a new creation. God, you're desiring to make us new. You make all things new, God. We just ask that you work through your spirit today. Convict. If there's people who are still holding on to secret sin and shame, God, lay it at your cross. And God, what a beautiful picture of Jesus Moses serves as. Leaving the glory of Egypt to come down and identify with slaves. That's what your son Jesus did. Left the glory of heaven to come and be a deliverer for us. To, he, be, he had to become one of us in order to deliver us. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. And God, you're, you're, you're clearly showing us that we're designed to serve you through the story of Moses. Help us to be faithful in our calling. Help us to understand that if we're in a season of wilderness, that it's preparing us for what's ahead. To accept that as your discipline and as your nurture in our lives. God, we give this day and we give this week over to you. Do as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.